Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be looking at Prometheus as a Specter. My guest is Dr. Jason Reza Giorgiani, who is a philosopher and author of Prometheus and Atlas, World State of Emergency, Novel Folklore, Lovers of Sophia, Iranian Leviathan, and most recently, Prometheism. This is an internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Jason. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Jeffrey. We're going to be talking about Prometheus uh, as a specter. And uh, when I think of the word specter, it, it has so many different connotations. It could mean a ghost. Uh, I think you refer to it as a very unique ontological category, a way of defining what is real. Uh, but I wonder if you could elaborate on that. Sure. So the way in which I discuss uh, Prometheus as a specter in my new book, Prometheism, is an elaboration of the concept of the spectral revolution from Prometheus and Atlas. And, you know, in uh, the idea of the specter, there are three basic elements um, as I lay them out in uh, Prometheus and Atlas. There's the specter in reference to a spectrum, so that uh, any putative binary oppositions and dichotomies uh, that we abstract from out of phenomena um, are really um, abstracted for sort of utilitarian and practical purposes and in order to satisfy psychological needs. And they don't really reflect uh, the flux of phenomena. Uh, so um, the dichotomy between, say, spirit and matter, the spiritual and the material, or life and death, or the artificial and the natural, or um, going beyond the metaphysical plane and into issues of ethics, uh, I also follow Nietzsche in deconstructing the dichotomy between, say, good and evil as binary oppositions. Uh, so the spectral refers to the spectrum in that sense. Uh, and I think that a lot of paranormal phenomena, um, when we attend to them in the right way, they are clues and hints to the fact that we have abstracted these dichotomies from out of uh, the flux of, of uh, uh, phenomena and um, that, that uh, you know, th they don't have any objective reality. Then there's the sense of the specter as what is yet to come. And this is how Marx uses the term specter in the opening lines of the Communist Manifesto. Uh, the specter that's haunting Europe, the specter of communism. And the specter, uh, as what is yet to come, signifies that, you know, phenomena are a flux of becoming rather than uh, static being, that we live in um, a world of perpetual change and uh, of uh, evolutionary becoming rather than some kind of an absolute, eternal, uh, and fixed being. So it, so in that sense, it's very much uh, affirming the Weltanschauung of Heraclitus, as opposed to, say, that of Parmenides. And then 
the last sense in which I use spectral is most closely related to Prometheus, uh, and that's the specter as a ghost. But I, I make a very specific argument about the sense in which Prometheus is a specter, which I hope to unpack in the course of this conversation. But in Prometheus and Atlas, in the chapter on the spectral revolution, my claim is that what Heidegger calls the essence of technological science, which has a teleology, it has an aim, a goal-directedness, uh, as it unfolds throughout the course of history, as it shapes human history, this essence or spirit, the Geist, uh, as Hegel would have called it, of techno-scientific development is really an expression of the specter of Prometheus. It, uh, the characteristics of this development reflect the various aspects of the persona of Prometheus and, um, our being moved in order to uh, develop technological science and transform both the natural world and human nature by means of it is a kind of uh, demonic possession where we are mesmerically captivated by the specter of Prometheus. And so what I'm calling us to do is to become conscious of this specter who has demonically possessed us so that we can take more control over the ways in which it uh, shapes the world, particularly as we approach the technological singularity. Now, I think it's useful to mention at this point that uh, the conversation that we're having right now is the third in uh, the series of conversations re relating to your book, Prometheism. And I'm linking right now in the upper right-hand corner of the screen to the first two, because I, I think if you're viewing this conversation now, it'll be so much more helpful if you take a look at the earlier two, because uh, just in a few sentences, you've referred to uh, discussions that we had that that lasted much longer, and I I know the viewers will benefit from hearing the whole thing. Uh, let me ask you this though: you've used another word I think that deserves some unpacking. Uh, demonic. Could could you explain that a little more? Yeah, well, it's the term from which we get demon and demonology um, in the Judeo-Christian world, but uh, for the Greeks. Uh, a daimon wasn't a uh, malevolent spirit or a, a devil, as it were, um, that uh, takes possession of you only in a negative sense or, you know, um, basically interferes with your life with some nefarious intention. A daimon, as the Greeks understood it, was a motivating spirit. Uh, what the Romans later translated into Latin as genius. And so it is a kind of superhuman motivating uh, spirit that um, unconsciously drives a person uh, potentially to make certain discoveries and, um, you know, uh, elaborate certain innovations and so forth. And so uh, I'm suggesting that Prometheus is functioning demonically, not just on an individual level, but on a massive social scale, on a civilizational scale, I would say. And uh, within the context of the one civilization that has uh, colonized and dominated the entire planet, namely uh, technological scientific Western civilization.
what uh, Oswald Spengler called the Faustian civilization. Prometheus challenged the authority of the king of the gods, the father god Zeus, and and was punished for for doing that. So uh, I had a viewer uh, who posed a question some time ago: What's the distinction between Prometheus and Satan? The satanic is an idea that only makes sense in a Judeo-Christian context. So I would say that uh, the satanic or the Luciferian to put it in more positive terms, is an expression of the Prometheus archetype. It is an iteration of the Prometheus archetype. But uh, by no means are all iterations of the Prometheus archetype Luciferian or Satanic. So Satan is an expression of Prometheus in the world age dominated by Judeo-Christian uh, religion. And, and frankly, by the way, by Islam, okay, because the satanic is as significant an idea in Islam. Uh, shaitan, after all, is a Semitic word, which you find both in Hebrew and then in Arabic. And so uh, the satanic, um, in, in, in these terms of Promethean rebellion, uh, and um, from a, an Abrahamic perspective, hubris, uh, in terms of the human self-confidence in the capacity to acquire knowledge, and to develop technology and become self-sufficient, all of these characteristics are also uh, uh, qualities of Satan as he is described in the Islamic tradition. So the Satanic, whether in Judeo-Christian form or in Islamic form, is an expression of the Promethean, but there are many other expressions of the Promethean besides the Satanic, and the Promethean is much older than uh, Judeo-Christianity or Islam. Uh, so one of the reasons why I've emphasized Prometheus in this, uh, oh, I don't know what you could call it, um, let's just say movement that I've launched uh, with this book, is that the Promethean is not dependent upon the discourse of the Abrahamic revelations. It's older than them, and I think that it can also have a future beyond uh, the demise of um, the worldview of Judeo-Christianity or Islam. We've already hinted at one of uh, the primary characteristics of uh, Prometheus is a rebel. He's not satisfied to accept the uh, authority of uh, whatever father god figure happens to be dominant in, in any particular epoch. Uh, but I, I know there are many other characteristics. Yes, we should probably start with the one that, uh, you know, uh, basically defines Prometheus. In terms of his name. And so Prometheus, you know, comes from, uh, it, it's a compound that comes from the idea of forethought in Greek. Basically, his name means forethought, the one who thinks ahead, who has prevision, and who uh, allows us to make provision for the future. And in this word Prometheus, there's also a reference to the idea of mathos or mathemata, which uh, is the root of the word mathematics. And basically, that's the idea of knowing things about what you know nothing about yet. And so it's the idea of developing a kind of anticipatory projection, a formulaic mold, a kind of grid or graph or uh, model that will allow you to classify things and to uh, develop a projection. Um, it, it, as you acquire more information about 
the world or whatever phenomenon it is that you want to control. So uh, Prometheus's name is related to the essence of the mathematical, which is the basis for really all of the sciences. Even the sciences that were less mathematical throughout the course of history, like biology, for example, still exemplify mathematical thinking, even if it's not in the form of equations uh, with variables. And so, you know, you, you have this idea of forethought uh, as um, scientific projection, but there's also forethought in terms of divination. You know, Prometheus taught humanity divination. This is uh, one of the things that Hesiod and Aeschylus tell us about Prometheus is that he taught humanity divination. And let's also remember that when Prometheus is punished, which we'll come to later, uh, Zeus's eagle pecks out his liver every day, his ever regenerating liver. And that's because the liver was used for fortune telling or soothsaying by the archaic Greeks. So the liver itself is a symbol of seeing the future. And that means that Prometheus is forethought, the god of the deity of forethought, uh, as much in the sense of precognition as in the sense of uh, scientific projection uh, and technological provision for the future, like, you know, uh, using technology in order to um, develop agricultural products and store them with a view to the winter season and survival, you know, of a, of a harsh climate. Um, let's also remember that Prometheus was chained to the Caucasus, and so he's associated with the Caucasus, a cold, snowy climate, and he's a god who's emerging from out of the Indo-European civilization, uh, people who uniquely were afflicted with uh, harsh seasonal winters and who had to make provision for the future. So that's uh, the first defining characteristic of Prometheus, and it can be contrasted with the afterthought or forgetfulness of his brother Epimetheus, the idiot, the forgetful one, uh, who forgets to allocate a specific quality to humanity when, after pleading with Prometheus to help him participate in the engineering of man. Uh, you see this kind of forgetfulness of, of um, his brother Epimetheus. And I think that the contrast between Prometheia and Epimetheia as qualities in the Greek language is a contrast between authentic and inauthentic human existence. What, let's say, Colin Wilson called, um, you know, superconsciousness on the one hand, the prom Prometheia, and Epimetheia, or being a robot, as Colin Wilson put it, on the other hand. Now, if I understand correctly, Prometheus was a, a titan, not uh, one of the Olympian gods. He, in fact, the titans, I think, were overthrown by Zeus, but uh, obviously didn't go away completely. Isn't that correct? Well, that's certainly correct, and I want to actually dwell on that for a bit. Uh, uh, but before we come to that, and I think that has a lot to do with the qualities of Prometheus as a trickster and a rebel, uh, how, you know, well, we'll come to it momentarily. One thing I wanted to add, though, in terms of the idea of forethought, um, is that, you know, science fiction in general is Promethean. The, the first great work of science fiction, Mer uh, Shelley's Frankenstein, uh, is subtitled The Modern Prometheus. And so science fiction in general is a sphere wherein you see uh, many iterations of the Prometheus archetype. And I think that this particular quality of Prometheus, namely forethought, can be seen um, spectacularly in Isaac Asimov's Foundation, 
where you know Selden, uh, Dr. Selden's developing this idea of psychohistory or a science of predicting the future so that you can prepare for it better. And, you know, he develops this foundation in order to prepare for the eventual collapse of the galactic empire and to um, undertake machinations that will shorten the dark age between the collapse of the empire and the rise of a new galactic order. And uh, if I uh, understand Western history correctly, it seems that uh, esoteric orders have have been doing that uh, throughout history because, you know, the Roman Empire collapsed, the uh, medieval era collapsed, but there was always an, an esoteric current often associated with Hermeticism that that survived and, and helped uh, create a, a new renaissance each time. And it's worth noting that the first of those orders, namely the Pythagorean order, uh, is arising from out of the same cultural milieu that I think led to the valorization of Prometheus. Because, you know, Pythagoras studied for a dozen years in the capital of the Persian Empire. And um, th there are a lot of aspects of the Prometheus archetype that reflect qualities of Ahura Mazda, uh, the... the uh, deity of Zoroastrianism. And we'll get into some of those. And what I suggest in Prometheus and Atlas is that it's not coincidental that Prometheus becomes this great tragic hero of the Greeks right after the Persian invasion of Ionia. And Aeschylus himself was a veteran of the Persian Wars. Um, in fact, he took so much pride in that, that he, he had that put on his, his tombstone rather than any reference to himself as a, a poet or tragedian. So, uh, and he was a, the author of the Persians, which he writes from a, a sort of sympathetic perspective, getting into the mind of Xerxes and uh, the other uh, Persian leaders that, you know, the Greeks fought against. So I think it's not at all coincidental that we see a lot of similarities between Prometheus and uh, Mazdai Ahura, or the wise titan that Zarathustra uh, sings about in his Gathas. Well, as I recall from uh, one of our previous discussions of, about Zoroastrianism, uh, Ahura Mazda uh, was originally considered a, uh, a demonic figure uh, who uh, got resurrected and became uh, more positive in, in the light of Zoroastrian teaching. The Ahuras are titans. They are, in, in the uh, Indo-European community, the ancient Iranians and the uh, the people who became the Indians were particularly close. They call them the Indo-Iranian peoples. And so what's referred to as the Ashuras in the Vedic pantheon, the Titans, uh, are the Ahuras in the Iranian um, culture, the archaic Iranian culture. And so uh, Ahura Mazda, or actually as, um, as uh, Zarathustra calls him, uh, in, in uh, proper language of the Gathas, Mazdai Ahura means the wise titan. And is it really coincidental that this wise titan is associated with an ever-living fire, an undying fire, and that the chief attribute of this wise titan is Sepanto Menu, or the progressive mentality, the future-oriented mind, the uh, developmental or innovative mindset. That is the chief quality of Mazdai Ahura, or the wise titan, who's symbolized by an undying fire in Zoroastrianism. So I think that this is essentially the same figure as Prometheus, 
albeit expressed in a more philosophically abstract form in the Gathas, less anthropomorphic. But it expresses the same aspiration. And, and one of the uh, similarities here is that, you know, Prometheus is uh, not just a creator, a beneficent, benevolent creator who engineers humanity, but also a civilizer god. And, you know, th this is true of uh, the spirit of Ahura Mazda, Spantamenu, in Zoroastrianism. It's the civilizing force, the force of cultivation, of humanization. Uh, and so this is another aspect of Prometheus. He's the creator and civilizer god, who you could compare also to, uh, let's say, Enki, going back to the, the ancient Mesopotamian culture. Uh, Enki, the engineer of humanity, who's a civilizer god and who's uh, at war with uh, Elil, who's in many ways similar to Zeus. Um, and so, you know, you have this other aspect uh, of Prometheus. And this is to talk about demonization and, you know, inversion of religious values. This is also characteristic of the fallen angels in Genesis and the Book of Enoch. You know, the, the so-called fallen angels, the rebel angels who descend to the earth and interbreed with human women are also described in, in Genesis and, but, and much more extensively in the Book of Enoch, which I believe was excised from Genesis. Um, they're described as those who taught humanity all the arts and the sciences. They taught the women that they interbred with all of the various arts and sciences. And so... They are kind of, uh, you know, uh, refractions of the Promethean archetype. These fallen angels are, uh, and they're demonized, of course, in the, you know, Judeo-Christian and the Islamic tradition. Well, it does seem that uh, throughout history, there are these reversals like yin and yang between the uh, titans and the gods and the gods and the demons that uh, in, in one epoch, uh, something that's viewed negatively comes to be reversed in another epoch. Indeed. Um, just to con continue in, uh, in the comparison between uh, the fallen angels of the Bible and uh, Prometheus as a civilizer god, it's worth noting as well that uh, Prometheus' son, Deucalion, is the kind of Noah figure uh, in Greek culture. He's the one who builds the ark, as it were, and brings civilization back to the earth after Zeus has punished humanity with this worldwide deluge, uh, w which also is the first connection that we see between Prometheus and Atlas, uh, the king of Atlantis, uh, one of the brothers of Prometheus is the Titan Atlas, and in Timaeus and Critias, uh, Plato depicts Atlas as the king of Atlantis, the, the uh, you know, world-colonizing civilization that's drowned by Zeus for its hubris and irreverence, because they've stopped basically sacrificing to the gods, and, you know, humanity is... Uh, you know, has a faith in itself and its own divinity. And so the world is wiped clean in this global deluge. This is a clear parallel to the flood of Noah. And there's a clear parallel between Noah and Deucalion, the son of Prometheus. Now, you've just introduced an interesting idea that uh, seems to be abhorrent to many religious traditions uh, and yet essential to other religious traditions. The idea that uh, there, you, humanity is... Uh, Something there's something godlike about humanity that uh, one might say we are gods in the making. Well, that's exactly the essence of 
the idea that Prometheus is the engineer of man. I mean, the symbolic significance of having Prometheus engineer humanity in his own image is to say that we were intended to be a race of gods who would replace the Olympians. Um, so, so this takes us, uh, you know, Carl Karenyi, uh, by the way, uh, a mythologist who is in the Jungian school of psychology, a, a kind of Jungian mythologist. Carl Karenyi wrote a book on Prometheus where he identifies Prometheus as the archetypal image of human existence, of human existence as such. In other words, we are made in the image of a deity, of a, of a titan. Uh, and so Prometheus expresses the godlike potential of humanity. And, you know, one of, uh, one of the, um, one of the things that this brings us into is the whole question of the rebellion against the Titans, uh, and then against the Olympian gods, where Prometheus plays a hand in both, right? So Prometheus, as the archetypal image of human existence, in a way, is an anti-god. He's a deity who's an anti-god and who signifies the fact that humanity is itself divine and need not be in a position of servitude to any gods beyond itself. And so you see this in how, you know, Prometheus schemes with Zeus to overthrow the Titans. Because he thinks that Zeus is going to be a more b beneficent uh, and benign ruler than the Titans. And then quickly he's disabused of this delusion and sees that, you know, Zeus is even more tyrannical in some ways than they are. And uh, he schemes twice uh, to outwit Zeus. First, in terms of the theft of fire, the, the gift of the light of uh, science and, and the fire of the forge of technology to humanity. Uh, he outwits Zeus by stealing fire and the fennel stalk from Olympus. And he also outwits Zeus when he sets up the paradigm for sacrifice to the gods. Uh, Prometheus, knowing that the Olympians are, are demanding sacrifices from humanity, Prometheus tricks Zeus by setting up two different uh, sacrifices in front of him. And one is like a, a bowl where, you know, uh, marbled fatty meat is set over a bunch of bones that are concealed under the meat. And the other consists of a bowl of uh, lean meat, an offering of lean meat. And Zeus uh, accepts the, the, the kind of marbled uh, uh, fatty meat as the paradigm or prototype for sacrifices from humanity, not knowing that, you know, this, uh, this fat is just on the surface and it's all bones underneath and that Prometheus has saved, uh, the, the nourishing part of the sacrificed animal for humanity. And so this is another, um, outwitting of, of Zeus after the theft of fire. And it's meant to signify, uh, the, the uh, legitimate irreverence of humanity that you know, we ought not to be sacrificing anything that allows us to flourish to any gods above ourselves. And what these two examples show us, uh, not just of Prometheus outwitting Zeus, but the fact that to begin with, he schemed, Prometheus schemed against his fellow Titans to bring Zeus to power. It shows us the aspect of Prometheus as a trickster and a thief. And so Prometheus 
is not an entirely positive archetype. Prometheus has this shady side to him where he is a trickster and a thief involved in machinations um, and various, uh, you know, uh, displays of guile and cunning. Ultimately, though, on behalf of humanity. Uh, and in this way, he's comparable, you know, to other trickster figures uh, in various religious traditions. He's a kind of um, mirror image of the Hermes Mercury uh, figure from the Olympian pantheon. Uh, but he could also be compared to um, trickster figures in shamanic cultures like the coyote among Native Americans, who, for example, plays dead in order to then get the upper hand. Uh, and I think in the realm of science fiction, and this is going to be a very controversial statement, but in the realm of science fiction, for those who are familiar with the reboot of Battlestar Galactica, Ronald Moore's version of Battlestar Galactica, I think uh, you can legitimately say that shifty Gaius Baltar, the designer of the Cylons, who later becomes this uh, political and religious leader, is uh, exemplifying this trickster quality of the Prometheus archetype. Isn't it the case that when we're talking about uh, the, uh, I think what Joseph Campbell might say, the faces, the many faces of God, the many deities and titans, uh, that uh, at a deeper sense, they're all a reflection, all of them, a, a reflection of one underlying reality. I mean, that's really the, the essence, I think, of uh, monotheism. Well, actually, I would reject that. Uh, for a variety of reasons. I mean, but that would be a long discussion that we could have about monotheism versus, say, polytheistic paganism. And I, I am much more sympathetic to the pagan uh, worldview uh, because I think that, and this kind of takes us into the next aspect of Prometheus that I did want to talk about, which is revisiting the idea of Prometheus as a rebel. I think that monotheism and the kind of Joseph Campbell's position is consistent to some extent with uh, the perennial philosophy and with um, uh, traditionalism, capital T, uh, with the idea of a Sophia perennis. I think that this uh, view inclines itself toward tyranny and totalitarianism. And, you know, even, you know, the people with the most, uh, how could you put it, a free-spiritedly new age uh, sensibility who are inclined toward a view that all is one, um, they are unwittingly uh, subscribing to a kind of metaphysics and uh, drawing certain certain ethical conclusions from from an ontological position that can be turned around and used in order to cement an authoritarian uh, or even totalitarian power structure. Whereas when you, when you have a kind of panpsychic pluralism as your ontology, as the basis of your worldview, the way that William James did, when you admit that, okay, you know, all phenomena are interpenetrating, Gautama, uh, Buddha was right to suggest that, you know, uh, there is a kind of, uh, entanglement of all phenomena where everything lacks an inherent essence because it can only be defined in terms of its relation with something else, right? And there's a dependent origination of all phenomena. Granted, okay, that is metaphysically legitimate. That's the way the world manifests. But 
that doesn't mean that there aren't multiple centers of force that are struggling with one another in order to manifest uh, the cosmos. And so this kind of panpsychic pluralism, uh, a pluralism of, of relatively independent, relatively independent and opposed forces in a dynamic tension, which I think is what you see in William James and going all the way back to Heraclitus and certainly in Nietzsche, uh, this, this leads to a kind of pagan polytheistic religious sensibility, which I ultimately think is a greater defense against tyranny and totalitarianism. And this would bring us to the idea of Prometheus as a rebel. Well, Prometheus is uh, a figure that seems very much alive in modern culture. You mentioned the uh, famous novel Frankenstein, but uh, we see movies about Prometheus. We see illustrated uh, novels about Prometheus. He's uh, hardly, uh, you know, part of the dusty ancient uh, Greek past. Oh, not at all. I mean, I would say in some ways Prometheus is the god who's most alive, and that makes perfect sense. Because, as I suggested at the outset, um, you know, Prometheus is the specter of technological science. And, you know, it's, it's world-in-framing power, as Heidegger puts it, which is coming to a culmination as we approach the technological singularity. And so you see Prometheus all over, uh, particularly American popular culture, um, and especially in science fiction. Uh, I mean, for example, Magneto in the X-Men, I think is a very dangerously Promethean uh, figure. I think that Magneto, uh, in his will to rebel against the existing socio-political order uh, in order to protect the further evolution of this group of mutants, uh, these, you know, uh, mutants with, with psychical and, and biological capacities that are superhuman, Magneto is a kind of Promethean rebel. Uh, who refuses to compromise with the establishment in the way that Professor X does. Professor X who gets himself into business with the CIA and who's always looking for a way to compromise with the establishment. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you see this figure all over popular culture, and I discuss examples of this in Prometheism. And so, speaking of Magneto um, and of Prometheus as a rebel, I think that it's important to recognize uh, that the rise of Prometheus in the period of Aeschylus uh, to a position of um, prominence in Greek culture as a kind of supreme tragic hero, it heralds the rejection of uh, the, the ethical position that might makes right, which we later see uh, in, a, in a more rigorously scholastic way in Plato's philosophy. So, you know, the, the ideas on justice that Plato develops in Republic, that it's the wise who should rule, and those who have, you know, the most well-developed character and the most refined capacities in order to govern a society in a manner that will allow uh, for human flourishing, it's those individuals who ought to rule, not the most uh, forceful people in society or the wealthiest people in society. I think that position on justice that's developed in Plato's Academy, Plato's Academy, where, by the way, there was a shrine to Prometheus, and they used to run from the, they used to take torches lit in the, in the fire of the shrine to Prometheus in Plato's Academy and run down into the city of Athens with them, with these torches. In any case, uh, 
these ideas on justice that we see developed in classical Greek philosophy are heralded by the portrayal of Prometheus in the tragedy of Aeschylus, in, in the cycle of Prometheus tragedies written by Aeschylus, Prometheus the firebringer, Prometheus bound, and so forth. Um, and so in these tragedies, I think what you see is the first development of the insight that there can be an ideal order of things. The world can be other than the way that it is. The way things are, and the way they appear to always have been, as traditionalists conceive of it, right? It's social institutions are justified because this is the way we always did things. You know, th this is how it always has been. This is what we inherited from the forefathers. In the portrayal of Prometheus that, that Aeschylus gives us in his tragedy, we see the first conception of an ideal order of things, a kind of utopia defined against the way things happen to be uh, and the way things were um, in the time of our ancestors. So the vision of utopia uh, is the basis for Promethean rebellion, for uh, Prometheus as the rebel against every form of tyranny. Uh, which is, you know, not just the tyranny of a, of a, of a despot or of oligarchs, but also tyranny of the majority, where, you know, a collective of people want to impose stagnation and, uh, conservative protection of, 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 uh, various social institutions. They want to impose this kind of regressive, uh, state of affairs onto a, an innovative and visionary minority who, you know, uh, wind up being sacrificed for the sake of a stagnant majority. And of course, this brings us back to Magneto, who I think, you know, is the rebel against the tyranny of the majority on, on behalf of a, of a visionary, uh, and evolutionary minority. So Magneto is calling for a kind of evolutionary revolution, which is how I see the spectral revolution. In uh, your recently published uh, Prometheus Manifesto, you begin by uh, basically uh, issuing a declaration of war. And I gather that you meant it uh, almost in the sense uh, that the uh, Muslims refer to jihad, that it's a, a kind of inner war against uh, these constraints that you've just uh, enunciated. I don't accept that characterization of jihad. I mean, this is a very liberal uh, kind of, uh, well, it's an insult to liberalism, I think, to call it liberal. It is a, is a misconstrual of jihad based on later Sufi uh, notions of spiritual struggle for the cultivation of one's um, ethical fiber. Uh, I think jihad was uh, significantly reinterpreted later in in the history of the Islamic world, particularly uh, in Iran, by certain Sufi sages and uh, Illuminist philosophers. Um, so the sense in which, uh, the sense that jihad had, as I see it, and I've studied Islam extensively in depth for many years, wrote my master's thesis on Islam um, and the question of universal human rights. And I see jihad uh, in, in the sense that Muhammad meant it, as exactly what I'm fighting against with my declaration of war at the outset of Prometheism. In other words, these kinds of uh, persecutory religious crusades that are meant to forcibly convert populations uh, to an authoritarian belief system 
that is based on revelation, meaning what God Almighty gave you from on high that you have to submit to. Islam, after all, means submission. Uh, this is exactly what I'm declaring war against at the outset of the Prometheus Manifesto and in the, the book Prometheism. Um, and so I would say, actually, this declaration of war, to, to continue with the theme of Prometheus as a rebel, is a lot more akin to the uh, declaration of the American Revolutionary War uh, against the British Empire. And, you know, in, in the few lines after that opening sentence, I describe this war as a revolutionary war, a war for an evolutionary revolution. And so, uh, to me, uh, the the more proper historical analogy would be to the declaration of the American Revolution and of the Revolutionary War in this country. The archetype of Prometheus, like all archetypes, I think has uh, a, a positive, progressive uh, side to it and also a dark side, a shadow side. I, I think you've expressed that uh, as, as well. A declaration of war can have both sides to it. And, and I... Uh, I wonder how how do you balance that, Jason? Well, I think uh, one one important thing to keep in mind, um, with a view to answering that question, is that uh, Prometheus is also a martyr, and this brings us to, you know, the last of the handful of defining characteristics of the Prometheus archetype, is that Prometheus is not just the first tragic hero. Uh, you remember Aeschylus really invented the genre of tragedy. So in his cycle of uh, plays about Prometheus, he's presenting us with what is essentially the first tragic hero in history. But Prometheus is more than just the first uh, hero of tragedy. He's more than just the first great tragic figure. He's also the first martyr god. Uh, he comes before Christ. He is a, he is a Christ. It's wrong to call him a Christ-like figure. Promethe uh, Christ, Christ is a Prometheus-like figure. But I would say that Prometheus is a, is a much more significant, uh, much more, let's put it this way, internally consistent, cohesive, coherent vision of a martyr God than Christ. Because when Jesus is being sacrificed on the cross, he knows that in three days he's going to be resurrected by his heavenly father. Um, what kind of a sacrifice is this? When you know that, you know, you're either, you're either the human incarnation of God or you're the son of God. And, you know, uh, he's, Jesus says on the cross at any moment I could call for legions of angels to come and extricate me from this situation. But he kind of, he plays along with this farce to have himself be executed. Uh, and then, you know, with the knowledge that he'll be resurrected three days later. This is nothing compared to the sacrifice of Prometheus, chained to the rock in the Caucasus, with his ever-regenerating liver pecked out every day. This is an image of perpetual torture. It's like eternal damnation. Uh, in Prometheus's punishment, we're given the first image of eternal damnation, and it's an eternal damnation suffered by a, a deity, by a, a titan, by a god or a titan. For the sake of humanity. So Prometheus sacrifices himself for his children. And uh, I think that this is, this is the most positive image of a martyr god that we have in all of human religious history. Certainly more positive than the image of Ali 
or Hossein and the uh, Shiite branch of Islam, although comparable in some ways to the cult of martyrdom and of sacrifice in Shiaism. So one uh, important element in answering your question is that in this revolutionary war, self-sacrifice is, is really paramount. Uh, that, you know, the one in whose name this revolutionary war is waged is one who first and foremost sacrificed himself for the sake of humanity. And, you know, you see this reflected in various figures in the history of science and technology who, you know, lived miserable lives while acting as benefactors of humanity. You saw this uh, when Nikola Tesla was defunded and uh, basically reduced to destitution by, uh, you know, his investors who pulled out on him, J.P. Morgan and uh, Westinghouse and so forth, who pulled out on him when they realized that uh, the worldwide energy system that he was trying to develop is something that could not be metered and monetized. And this was, of course, in the age of, you know, the, dis the uh, discovery of petroleum and of Rockefeller as the first, you know, magnate of the petroleum industry and so forth. And th there was a killing to be made on, on uh, oil and other non-renewable energy resources. And so Tesla was reduced to destitution and, uh, you know, misery for wanting to be a benefactor of humanity. You also saw this with Jack Parsons. Jack Parsons, the father of the American rocketry program, was badly persecuted for his uh, sort of Luciferian theological beliefs and for his nonconformist uh, way of life. He was stripped of his security clearance, um, marginalized, and then ultimately died under mysterious circumstances. And then finally, uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer, who really... Uh, underwent a crisis of conscience for his role in the development of the atomic bomb, and who was a profoundly spiritual man who, who read Sanskrit, uh, like Tesla, who was very interested in, you know, ancient Hindu mythology and uh, various esoteric and occult concepts from the Vedantic tradition. Uh, Oppenheimer was um, prosecuted uh, during the uh, McCarthy uh, uh, witch hunt as a potential communist. So I think Oppenheimer is another Prometheus figure that you see in the history of uh, modern science and technology. Are you suggesting by urging a, a social movement of Prometheism that uh, people should sacrifice themselves uh, like these martyrs? I am. I'm suggesting that this movement has to be led by people who are prepared to, you know, pay the price themselves and who are, who are uh, you know, ultimately not driven by a desire to attain and wield and maintain power, but who are willing to sacrifice, as the founding fathers of the United States put it, not only their wells, but not only their lives, but also their wealth and their property. They pledge their property uh, and their lives to the cause. And I think, you know, this is a fundamental uh, psychological differentiation uh, that it's important to make between the authoritarian personality who wants to seize power and maintain power by any means, and a person who's willing to sacrifice everything, uh, including being publicly humiliated, 
in order to emancipate people and to to be a, a leader in what is essentially a liberation struggle. Well, that's uh, very eloquently uh, put, Jason, and I, I can't help but think that you, you've already kind of positioned yourself uh, uh, that way. Yeah, I don't know if, I don't think it was intentional, but it's, it, it's what's occurred in, in your career. You were uh, teaching at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. You had many students who loved you. Uh, I happen to know firsthand uh, what an excellent teacher you are, uh, but you had to give that up because of uh, uh, circumstances uh, which are very complex, and uh, uh, I'm sure we don't want to go into all those details now, but you must feel that uh, sense of isolation. I understand the isolation of Victor Frankenstein in, in, in Shelley's novel quite well, uh, you know. Um, so, and this brings us also to the question you mentioned, conscious, unconsciously, whether such and such was conscious or unconscious. Uh, it brings us to the question of the collective unconscious and, and of egregores and so on and so forth. Um, and of how egregores are, are created or revitalized and of how archetypal forces, like the Prometheus archetype, can uh, shape our lives unconsciously and what it means to become conscious of, uh, of this and the power that that could give us. Excellent topic. So, uh, in Prometheism, I suggest that what I meant in Prometheus and Atlas when I described Prometheus as a specter is that Prometheus is an egregore based on an archetype. When you look at Jung's definition of archetypes, there are times when Jung defines archetypes in very abstract terms, almost as if he's describing the equivalent of the, the Platonic eidos. In fact, he makes specific reference to Plato um, in Archetypes and the Collective Unconscious. He makes repeated references uh, specifically to Plato and to the eidos uh, concept to the to the idea in the platonic sense which would which would include something as abstract as the idea of a triangle the the uh, abstract mathematical form um, of a triangle or any geometric formula but there are other times when jung talks about archetypes as if they are uh, they are patterns uh, information structures relevant only to particular cultures um, or even only to male or female psychology. And, and this would tend to suggest that archetypes evolve together with the types of people who are shaped by them and the kind of communities that are, that, that are uh, impacted by these archetypes. And so uh, I think actually Jung himself was not all that clear on what he meant by an archetype. There's a lot of philosophical ambiguity in his notion of the archetype. But one thing that we can, can say most definitely is that there are archetypes that are too general and too abstract, either too general or too abstract, to be the basis for an egregore. So, for example, you're not going to get a, an egregore of uh, a triangle. Okay, the, the, the form of the perfect triangle is not something that's going to generate an egregore, nor for that matter is an archetype as general as the great mother. The great mother archetype it does not have enough of, uh, uh, of a personality, not enough of a persona 
a specific personal characteristics to be able to generate an egregore. But Prometheus is exactly that type of, of uh, archetype. It's exactly the kind of archetype that can generate an egregore as well. And so what an egregore is, is a thought form that is, is uh, generated either unconsciously or deliberately by a group of people. And the group can be as small as the, you know, the Toronto Society for Psychical Research, who uh, generated the egregore of Philip. Um, who, and in this sense, an egregore is, is much akin, as you've, as you've suggested in other shows you've done, uh, it's much akin to the Tibetan notion of the tulpa, of a psychokinetic thought form which develops a certain degree of autonomy um, and can cause effects in the world beyond the explicit control of the per of the person or persons who generated this thought form, and that then you know has to be uh, basically disintegrated through through a great expenditure of effort if it if it proves to uh, you know um, be uh, a nefarious and, and and malevolent force. Okay, if it gets out of control in ways that are nefarious, then you know, a lot of effort has to be put into uh, taking apart this thought form, and, and that may not even succeed. So I think there are probably egregores that got loose um, and were relevant to one or another society of the past and that are unfortunately still with us. But a, a really uh, important distinction to draw between the kind of egregore that Philip was um, the you know this this uh, tulpa produced by the Toronto Society of Psychical Research, a distinction between that type of egregore and Prometheus as an egregore, because just as there are archetypes that are too general or abstract to be able to uh, be the basis for the formation of an egregore, there are egregores that are not archetypal in nature. I mean, Philip, you know, he had a whole story made up for him by the Toronto Society for Psychical Research. Some tragic love story that involved the, you know, uh, the, the death of his beloved and who was, who was accused of being a witch by this kind of, I think it was a Renaissance period, you know, society that he was living in. He, Philip had a personal narrative that brought him to life for this group of, uh, psychical researchers. But he, he is not an expression of an archetype. Whereas the Prometheus egregore has an archetypal significance and power uh, that um, transcends the uh, endeavors of any particular group of people to reactivate this archetype in the form of an egregore. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm not quite sure where to go with that now. Well, well let, me, let me add this, because that was a little bit all over the place. What I mean to say is this, that throughout the history of technological science, and how it's reshaped the world, the world colonizing force of technological science is already an expression of the Prometheus archetype. And so it's not as if, when I talk about Prometheus as a specter, I'm suggesting that we hold hands in a seance and we project an egregore of Prometheus. No, this force is already at work in the world. It is the force that is responsible for what Heidegger characterizes as the kind of autonomous quality that techno-scientific development has, where, where 
it becomes increasingly apparent that modern technological science and industry uh, has a kind of mind of its own, and it's having its way with us. You know, and you, you see a vivid portrayal of that in the Terminator films, where you know the network of modern industrial manufacturing, with its nexus in the military-industrial complex, literally yields a a mind that's beyond the control of humanity, and that that takes possession of the whole network of machinery and turns it against humanity. So. Uh, what Heidegger meant by identifying the setup, the gestell, the way in which we're being set up, like framed, like for a crime, this setup of modern technological science already is expressing the archetypal force of Prometheus. And, and I would even say that it's not just, you know, it's not just, uh, expressing this archetype, but it is, it is a demonstration of the power of, of an egregore. And so what I'm calling for in Prometheism is not that we create the egregore of Prometheus, but that we take control of an egregore that's already loose in the world uh, by, by uh, resonating with it, by uh, understanding its origin in, in the collective unconscious and um, becoming conscious of it and thereby transforming the ways in which it manifests. Now, as I recall from your manifesto, one of the enemies of Prometheism is fatalism. And uh, it seems to me that many people feel uh, a fatalistic sense that we have no control over this technology. It's going to move forward in spite of any ethical considerations uh, or humanistic considerations that anyone might have it because of the profit motive. That's right. And... So what I'm suggesting is that, um, and this is very much Frankenstein's monster on the loose in Shelley's novel. Uh, and so what I'm suggesting is that we take control of this specter. You know, I, in Prometheus and Atlas, I interpreted the Frankenstein monster as a projection of the mad scientist's own psyche, that there are a lot of passages in Shelley's novel that suggest that What's really going on here is, you know, a projection from out of Victor Frankenstein's mind out into the world. Uh, there are lots of ways in which the, the creature is described um, that uh, imply it's more like a ghost than like, you know, a, 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 an organic entity that's been engineered on a laboratory table, as it, as it seems on the surface of the novel. And let's remember that Frankenstein is an alchemist. Dr. Frankenstein is an alchemist. And the view of alchemy that's expressed in Shelley's novel is the most extreme view of alchemy. You know, there were three positions, uh, just to go on a tangent for a second. There are three positions, um, on alchemy throughout the course of history. One was the church's position, which was that alchemy is demonic and can only degrade nature. The other was the position that was taken by most alchemists, like Paracelsus Cornelius Agrippa, um, you know, and Albertus Magnus that alchemy is about perfecting nature, that there are certain potentialities in nature that can be perfected by alchemy. And then there was a third view, which is the Promethean view, that alchemy is about pushing beyond the limits of nature and of, and of bringing unnatural creations into being that could not have been but for the will of man. Uh, and it, it's that kind of attempt to fashion homunculuses and golem and so forth that we see expressed in Shelley's novel. Um, and so I'm suggesting that, uh, you know, 
that's the kind of dark alchemy that's been involved in letting this egregore loose in the world. And we, we as the alchemists on a subconscious level need to take back control of this egregore. And, you know, it's, it's very much, uh, uh, comparable to the, uh, narrative in, uh, Forbidden Planet, you know, the, the monsters from the id, um, that are, uh, that are attacking this, uh, uh, uh scouting party of, of space travelers that have come to a planet where they find the ruins of a an advanced civilization and uh, you know they, they experience these uh, uncanny uh, events uh, poltergeist like events and uh, eventually they realize that um, the force that that's afoot here is a projection from out of the unconscious uh, it's a kind of monster from the id and there's a much more contemporary example of this in popular culture in Ghostbusters, uh, in a way, you know, the, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man is the, the ultimate egregore of the postmodern age. In Ghostbusters, uh, there's a cult of Gozer worshippers who are trying to, it's a cult that, that was set up by a kind of, uh, mad architect and, and, uh, discredited medical doctor in the 1920s. And so in the 1920s, in Art Deco, New York, in the 1920s, these folks had summoned the egregore of Gozer, who's a kind of Mesopotamian god, an ancient god worshipped by the Hittites and the Sumerians. And uh, their aim was to, to bring this god down onto the modern world in order to, to uh, uh, bring about an apocalypse. And this egregore survived the end of that group that brought it into being. Uh, the, the, this group of occultists, they, they become inactive, their members die off, and this egregore that was summoned in 1920s New York reemerges in the 1980s. And uh, the Ghostbusters, uh, you know, have to confront this egregore. And what's interesting in terms of this, this uh, quintessentially postmodern narrative is that what Gozer tells the Ghostbusters, there are two statements made by Gozer to the Ghostbusters that are very significant in terms of the Promethean archetype. And one is that uh, Gozer asks the Ghostbusters, when they confront this egregore, uh, he asks one of the Ghostbusters, are you a god? And uh, this character says, uh, it's uh, Ray Stan says, no. And this, this then, you know, uh, is followed by this, you know, assault. So then, you know, Gozer turns on the Ghostbusters and displays, uh, her, uh, you know, divine power in response to this answer that no, you know, uh, I'm not a god. Uh, she says, then die. And the, and then, you know, one of the other Ghostbusters turns around to Ray Stans and says, whenever anyone asks you if you're a god, you say yes. And the point here is that these these guys who are using modern technology in order to take control of spectral forces and uh, to empower humanity in a way where we're not at the mercy of, you know, uh, deities with mir putatively miraculous powers, this team of scientists really... Uh, embody not in a single individual but as a group they embody the prometheus archetype and the other statement made by gozer uh, 
toward the end of the film that's very relevant to the Promethean archetype is she says to them, choose the form of the destructor, right? I am the God who will bring about the end of the world, but choose the form of the destructor. And, you know, it's a wonderfully ironic uh, postmodern statement that uh, this destructor winds up taking the shape of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Uh, but th there's a deep meaning here. There's a, there's a really uh, profound significance to this, to this uh, scene. And that's that it's to a large extent up to us to shape the egregore that threatens us with potential destruction, to reshape this egregore in a way that is potentially constructive and beneficial, or if not, at least into a form that we can more easily destroy, which is the state of marshmallow man, right? Uh, so, you know, I, th this is a, I think a, a wonderful uh, and, uh, you know, postmodernly ironic expression of the Promethean ethos in contemporary American popular culture. Those two um, modern stories that you mentioned, those two great films, Ghostbusters and Forbidden Planet, both seem to have slightly different messages. I think the, the message of Forbidden Planet is... Uh, a, a little more akin in, to my way of thinking with, with the Jungian idea of shadow work that we have to become aware of, of the, the dark demonic forces within our own psyche so they don't get out of control. But in Ghostbusters, uh, that's not what's required. Uh, so, so where do you stand on that, Jason, with regard to, to the question of uh, coming to terms with our own shadow? It's a question of how you define own there. Um, I would agree uh, that humanity needs to collectively confront the shadow side of humanity. So, you know, Jung draws a distinction between uh, the shadow as the, the personal unconscious and then the archetypes in the collective unconscious. This is one of the distinctions that Jung draws. And so the shadow tends to refer to the id, to the personal unconscious. But certain archetypes in the collective unconscious can cast a shadow over whole societies throughout the course of history. And so, um, I, you know, I don't, I don't think, I mean, these films are saying anything really fundamentally distinct. I think it's a question of emphasis because, you know, what, what's going on in Ghostbusters is a kind of recognition that, yes, we have to grapple with the shadow of our unconscious, but whole societies have the equivalent of a shadow being projected from out of their collective unconscious. And so there are confrontations between societies, between worldviews, between uh, uh, mythologies and theologies that need to take place on the way to humanity's uh, collective achievement of total self-consciousness. Uh, on the way to the end of history as Hegel conceived of it, as a point where, you know, the evolution of consciousness yields a, a entirely self-conscious humanity, which is no longer projecting these things unconsciously that wind up uh, becoming sources of oppression and domination. And so, you know, I, I think it's irresponsible to focus entirely on... Um, Attaining personal self-consciousness and being more aware of uh, deleterious uh, forces emerging from the depths of our own psyche, it's irresponsible to focus 
exclusively on that and not recognize that there are battles in the world that do need to be fought on a large scale, on a symbolic level that's relevant to all of humanity so that we can have social progress. Uh, and so that, you know, the, the motor of, of historical development can continue to the point where we do uh, achieve a utopian future for humanity. Well, Jason Reza Giorgiani, once again, a very stimulating conversation. Uh, I know we could keep uh, pursuing this for a long, long time, probably for thousands of years, uh, because these issues are, are, are so deep. But I'm very grateful to have had this time with you. And uh, I look forward to having more conversations with you anytime, because they're always a great pleasure. Thank you for being with me, Jason. Likewise, Jeffrey, thank you for the invitation. It's always wonderful. And uh, I'll give a heads up at this point, both to you and to your viewers, that perhaps the next round of our conversations can be about a sci-fi novel that I'm uh, putting the finishing touches on right now, and that I hope to see published uh, sometime uh, in the winter. So um, we can look forward to some conversations about that. Well, you're incredibly prolific. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.